And we have to remember that it's not abnormal to suffer. That's the thing that gets us, you know, when we think that somehow we aren't supposed to suffer. But that is actually what being human is largely about. Um, but people do suffer different amounts and in different ways. And we need, so we need to hold the pain of that. At the same time, we really need to remember we aren't alone. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber. I am so excited to bring you a conversation that every parent needs to hear, and especially parents of differently wired kids, and especially at this moment in time. The topic is self-compassion. And my guest is Dr. Kristen Neff, a pioneer in the field of self-compassion research and the author of many academic papers, as well as the books Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself, and The Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook. Dr. Neff also co-developed a training program called Mindful Self-Compassion and is an associate professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. In our conversation, Dr. Neff shares what she has learned about self-compassion, both through her research and her own experiences parenting an autistic child. She goes deep into what self-compassion really looks like, why we are often more compassionate to others than ourselves, and shares some strategies for strengthening that self-compassion muscle, both for ourselves and for our kids. This is a powerful conversation, and I promise you will finish this episode feeling uplifted, empowered to be more gentle with yourself, and perhaps most importantly, reminded that you are not alone. There is nothing we need to hear more right now. I'm so grateful to Dr. Neff for sharing her wisdom and research. And briefly before I get to that, there are a lot of great free summits happening this month. I'm calling it Summit Palooza including the Parenting ADHD and Autism Summit and the Raising Toddlers Conference. It's a lot to keep track of, I know. So every Thursday, I send out a short newsletter where I include up-to-date listings of free summits and conferences that you won't want to miss. I also always include a short personal message and highlights of articles that should be on your radar. So if you aren't already getting my newsletter, you can sign up anywhere on TiltParenting.com. Thanks so much. And now here is my conversation with Dr. Kristen Neff. Hello, Kristen. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Debbie. Happy to be here. As I was saying before I hit record, this is a conversation I've actually been wanting to have for several years. I know you had spoken at the Shift Your Thinking Conference a few years ago. I'm friends with those guys and have learned about your work many years ago in self-compassion. And I think now more than ever for what we're all experiencing, you know, in the world and and what so many families are experiencing with remote learning and this new landscape that this conversation is so timely. So thank you. You're welcome. So I would love if you wouldn't mind taking a few minutes and just tell us a little bit about your story of how you got into the work of self-compassion. I know you don't have to give us the whole story. You've shared it in many different ways and in videos and things that I'll, I'll share for listeners. But if you want to just briefly tell us how that became your focus. Yeah, well, it was really a personal journey. You know, I, I was under a lot of stress um, more than 20 years ago 
Um, and I had learned mindfulness meditation, hoping to deal with my stress. And the woman leading the course uh, talked about the importance of self-compassion, you know, about being actively warm and supportive and kind to yourself. Um, and so I started trying it and I was just blown away by the difference it made. Um, and then I did some research on self-esteem in my postdoctoral work. Um, and was learning all the, the problems with self-esteem, like that like we had to be special and above average. And, you know, it's a fair weather friend. Self-esteem is there for us when we succeed. But what happens when we fail? You know, it deserts us. And so I really realized that self-compassion was a really perfect alternative because it's a source of support and strength and stability and motivation, you know, constantly in good times and in bad. And so, yeah, I've really devoted my, uh, my life's work to this topic. And uh, it's been about 20 years now. And are you still, you know, is this still where the, the crux of your work is focused on? Are you still passionate about this topic? Absolutely. I mean, it, it's a life's work, right? So self-compassion, you know, it, it means how do we relate to our suffering? And suffering is like, <laughs> it's endless. Mm -hmm. And so there are more and more applications of self-compassion. So, I mean, I, I do research, but I've, I've really been into training. Like, how do we help people learn to be more self-compassionate? So I've developed programs you know, for, for regular people, also for healthcare workers, uh, parents of special needs kids, um, you know, educators, uh, athletes, basically, you name it. If you're a human being, then you suffer, but, you know, your suffering, suffering might take a different form depending on who you are. And so I'm, I'm really excited about tailoring the practice of self-compassion to help people um, really when they, when they need it most. I love too how you talked about self-esteem. That was something that struck me. I used to write books for teenage girls, kind of self-help, empowering, confidence-boosting books for girls. And, you know, back in the maybe early 2000s, there was this conversation going on around actually self-esteem is externally focused. And really, we want to be looking at self-respect and, and other ways that we actually have control over. But I hadn't thought of self compassion as a piece of that. And so I really loved the way you connected those two things. Yeah, yeah. So there's a pretty big literature now showing that, you know, so, so you know, self-esteem is a source of self-worth. If you define self-esteem as like judging yourself positively or good, and if you do, that, then the sense of self-worth. But when you fail, <laughs> you have no more self-worth. Whereas self-compassion is an unconditional source of self-worth. It's not about judging yourself positively. It's just acknowledging that you're a human being doing the best you can like everyone else. So it's, it's really, you don't have to earn self-compassion. It comes simply from the fact that you're a human being. And so for that reason, it's much more stable over time. So interesting. So I would love if you would take a few minutes to share a story. I've seen you give this story in talks, and I've also read this in your book. And it's something that I know my listeners are going to relate to, you know, when you were on the playground with your young child who is autistic and, and you had this kind of comparative suffering, I guess, uh, a moment. Could you talk to us about that? Yeah, right. So what happens normally, um, even though logically we know that everyone's imperfect and that everyone leads an imperfect life, what happens is in the moment when we fail or we struggle, we think, you know, this shouldn't be happening. You know, it's, it's not logical, but that's the reaction. This should not be happening. Things are supposed to be going better, as if everyone else in the world is leading this normal, perfect life, you know, and it's just me who's struggling. Uh, and as an autism parent, you, you know, you certainly feel that. And, and of course, there's a lot of autistic children out there, <laughs> but, um, and, and we know that. But what happens 
So, so the story was I was at the playground with my, my son, Rome, when he was about five. And he was, he was really in the depth of his autism there. You know, there are all these other parents and kids on the playground. And it was a sunny day. And they were playing. And the kids were playing with each other and interacting with their parents. And here's little Rowan just, you know, banging the slides, stimming away, you know, self-stimulatory behavior that goes with autism. And I started to go down the path of self-pity. You know, why me? Why can't I have a normal, unproblematic relationship with my child, like all these other parents? Um, but I caught myself because I've been doing self-compassion practice for a, a long time. And I realized, well, hey, you know, maybe it's not autism, but everyone struggles with their children. You know, maybe other physical issues or mental health issues, or, or at the very least, all parents have conflicts and challenges with their children. And in fact, that's what it means to be a parent. And so the moment I made that reframe, you know, I, instead of feeling isolated from everyone else there on the playground, I felt really connected to everyone. And, and so that's one of the, the powers of self-compassion. And it's also what differentiates self-compassion from self-pity. You know, self-pity is poor me. Self-compassion is, wow, everyone struggles. And when you remember that, you feel much less alone and you feel much more empowered by the fact that, you know, your brothers and sisters are going through a similar thing. And so it's a really important aspect of being self-compassionate. Yeah. And it's something, you know, when I read this, I totally related to it. One of the things I used to say when my son was little to my husband, I'd say, gosh, I would be such a good mom if I had a typical kid, you know? And, uh -huh. and of course, that was a ridiculous thing to believe. But, you know, I think that experience is certainly what I hear within my community. Many parents are really at that place where they're discovering more and more how neurodivergent their child is, and they're maybe going through a period of mourning, you know, the life that they thought they were going to have or whatever that looks like. And so I think that 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 story and that idea that this shouldn't be happening, this is harder for me than it is for everyone else is really where so many people are right now. And, and by the way, it is harder for you, yeah. <laughs> right? So, so, so everyone suffers, but not everyone's suffering is the same. So it's going to be harder for you if you're a parent of a, you know, um, a, a neurodiverse child or if you're, you know, subject to systemic racism or you've got a trauma history. I mean, so it's not that all suffering is the same or that all suffering is equal. And so we need to acknowledge that and we need to have compassion for a particular form of suffering, you know, and in a way we're the only ones who know who know it from the inside out. Mm -hmm. so we need to give that to ourselves. At the same time, we have to remember that it's not abnormal to suffer. That's the thing that gets us, you know, when we think that somehow we aren't supposed to suffer. But that is actually what being human is largely about. Um, but people do suffer different amounts and in different ways. And we need, so we need to hold the pain of that. At the same time, we really need to remember we aren't alone. You know, like in evolutionary psychology, they say a lone monkey is a dead monkey, right? Mm. When we feel alone, we feel so cut off and frightened from, from our you know, fellow human beings, it really adds insult to injury. So we, we need to remember that, yes, you know, we aren't alone. And, and that's why it helps to bond with like other autism parents or other, other people who share you know, a similar form of suffering to you. And so you know, both are true. Suffering is different. Suffering comes in different amounts. It has different causes. But the, but the universal truth is everyone suffers and it's normal as part of being a human being to struggle. Yeah, there's a quote 
in your book, actually, where you're discussing your son and questioning what normal is, the quote is, yes. uh, being human is not about being any one particular way. It is about being as life creates you with your own particular strengths and weaknesses, gifts and challenges, quirks and oddities. And I highlighted that. I loved it. And I, I think yeah. that is that idea that to suffer is human, that there is no one way that life is supposed to look for any of us is just so powerful. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it's true. Right. Yeah. But again, that that doesn't we don't want to use this as a way to belittle our own suffering or to say, well, then why am I complaining? Right. Everyone suffers. It's not that it's really opening our hearts to ourselves exactly as we are in the moment. If we feel like this shouldn't be this way, then what happens is we resist what is and we just make it worse. So not only are we suffering, we feel alone, we feel frustrated, we feel angry about it. Whereas if we open our hearts to what is, you know, and really we're really there for ourselves in, in terms of what's happening for us, um, then it gives us actually more resources to cope. And by the way, you know, sometimes it's not like we just want to accept our suffering. Sometimes we need to take action, right? So it, there's like a yin and a yang element to self-compassion. The yin is acceptance, and we accept that this is how things are. We accept ourselves as we are. But there's also a, a yang element, which is we, you know, which is kind of in Chinese philosophy, yang is more the, the powerful, um, forceful energy. Sometimes we need to change how things are, at least try our best to do it. You know, so maybe we need to advocate for our child in school. Or, you know, you need to fight for social justice or you, you need to try to make it or you need to change yourself in some way if you're doing some behavior that's unhealthy. So it's both. It's yin and it's yang. But ironically, it's by accepting ourselves and accepting the fact that it hurts and accepting the fact that we're flawed human beings that actually gives us the emotional resources needed to try to change things. So the two go hand in hand. They aren't they aren't opposites. We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. 
That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. So how do we then accept, again, I mentioned I have a parent community and on Facebook, I'd say every day there's half a dozen posts from parents who are really just in the thick of it, right? They've got explosive kids or their relationships are suffering and they're just burned out. So you know, you talk about being with your suffering. What does that actually look like and how can we build those muscles? Right. And so when we talk about being with our suffering, which is like the yin type of self-compassion, it, it takes, there's actually three elements to self-compassion and it's useful to know because they're almost like a recipe book for what we need to add to the ingredients just so that we can have this, this stable self-compassionate mindset. So the first is mindfulness, which is the ability to see what's happening, to be present with what's happening. It's like if we ignore our pain or we stuff it down, or conversely, if we just like run away with it and we get lost in it, then we have no perspective. The pers- we don't have the perspective needed to turn toward yourself and say, wow, you're really having a hard time. You know, what can I do to help? So we need that perspective. We need that space. Um, we need to be aware of our pain, but not lost in it. And so um, that gives us presence. Um, and then again, we need to react with kindness as opposed to harsh judgment, you know, saying, well, it's because you aren't a good enough parent or, you know, some people like I know a lot of um, parents feel like some irrational shame. You know, is it is it that, you know, glass of wine I had in my second trimester or is it you know something to do with my genes or is it something I did? There's like an irrational shame or guilt about having um, a special needs kid. And so it's it's really about remembering that you aren't alone, um, you're not, not judging yourself. Uh, so that that's the, the kindness piece. And then we can remembering that we're connected to others. And when you put these three together, when you put mindfulness, kindness, and common humanity together, it feels like loving, connected presence. And so what what it feels like when we when I say hold our pain with compassion, it means using loving, connected presence, being present with what is, remembering that we aren't alone, and being kind to ourselves. Something as simple as thinking, what would I say to a dear friend that I really cared for who was going through the same situation I'm going through? And then saying that to yourself. And it makes a radical difference um, in your ability to hold what is. Um, but again, remember that's only half the story. Then you also may need to make a change. Maybe you need to protect yourself. You know, maybe, you're, maybe your school district isn't doing enough for your child. You need to go in and fight for the services they need. 
you know, or, or you need to, you know, maybe you're, you're doing some sort of parenting behavior that's making things worse. And so you need to look at that and try to change. So it's acceptance and change constantly, this dialectic between the two. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that change and that action, we can be much more effective when we are in that place of self-compassion as opposed to reacting from fear or Absolutely. anger. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and the research, you know, there's almost like 3000 research articles now on the benefits of self-compassion. And really beyond a shadow of a doubt, it makes us stronger, it makes us more resilient, we make better decisions, we're more motivated, you know, we're healthier, both in mind and in body. Um, so it's, it's really worth asking yourself, can I bring, can I be self-compassionate to myself in this moment? Because uh, it, it'll make a big difference. There's also research with parents that it helps with parenting, including with um parents of, you know, neurodiverse children. Uh, it helps them cope, makes them stronger, um, you know, makes them less stress. It, re- it really makes a huge difference. Yeah. And you talk about actively self-comforting. I, I read about that. And I'm like, that seems to be a foreign concept for so many of us. Like we were not, most of us were not raised knowing how to even just hug ourselves, right? Or pat ourselves or take care of ourselves in a, in a physical way, bring comfort to ourselves. Yeah, exactly. And so in in some ways, that's one of the unique aspects of self-compassion, because we're raised to be nurturing and caring and supportive to others. You know, and by the way, most of us have learned that pretty well, especially, especially women, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, um, and especially parents. We, We know how to use our tone of voice in a warm way. We know how to use touch to communicate care. I mean, the first couple years of our kids' life, they didn't have language. So we communicated our care and our love and support through touch, through holding, right? All those things actually we've learned to do pretty well. We're, we're, most of us are compassion experts. And so when we give ourselves permission, and a lot of it is just permission to turn that lens inward, um, in some ways, because we're acting towards ourselves the way we might normally act towards another person, that gives us that space, that gives us that perspective. So again, instead of being lost in the pain or lost in the trauma, it's like we step outside of ourselves and we can say, we can look, be a little more objective and say, wow, you know, I'm really having a hard time. What can I do to help myself in this moment? Right? And that perspective is, is very useful. Um, and again, we know how to do it. And the body doesn't really know, you know, so if you, if you put your hand on your heart or on your chest or on your face and you say some, some warm words, your, your, your brain might say, what's happening? This feels a little weird, <laughs> but your body doesn't know the difference. Your body still reacts. It, it activates the parasympathetic nervous response. You know, it releases oxytocin. We calm down. We increase the heart rate variability. So we really can be there for ourselves uh, to a remarkable degree. And that's why I'm so passionate about self-compassion because people don't even realize it. It's like we have this superpower in our back pocket. And we don't even know that we have this ability to take it out and use it. Um, so I, that's why I tell people, just try it and you'll see for yourself the difference it makes. You don't have to take my word for it. You don't have to believe the 3000 studies, you know, try it um, and you'll see the difference it makes. Hmm. So I'm wondering if you know why there is resistance around this. I mean, I, I think about especially parents with atypical kids, we tend to judge ourselves, as you said, really harshly. We often feel guilt or shame, or we just beat ourselves up for choices we may have made, ways that we've parented. You know, is there a payoff in doing that? Like, what is it that prevents people from making this reframe and changing how they 
think about uh, their role and how they practice self-compassion. All right. So, so I think there's two main reasons. One is actually physiological is our nervous system and the other is cultural. So in terms of our nervous system reaction, um, when, when we feel threatened, right, we immediately go into fight, fight or freeze mode. That's just it's easily triggered response to danger. And so when we feel threatened by, you know, it's anything that goes wrong, so to speak, so that could be our child acting out or some mistake we've made. Um, so we feel threatened. So we go into fight, flight, or freeze mode to try to control the situation, to try to eliminate the danger. You know, we're just doing it naturally out of this desire to feel safe. But what happens is, is we get reactive when we're like in our sympathetic reaction. It's like we're, we're really reactive. We just fight the problem. Um, often the problem is us, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So if we feel we've made a mistake or we could do something differently. We beat ourselves up as a way of thinking, this is going to help us. This is going to help me control my behavior. So I'll get it right next time, you know, or we're afraid of other people judging us. So we like beat it, beat them to the punch. We, we kind of soften the blows of others by beating ourselves up first. Right. Or we like we flee in shame or we freeze in rumination. We just like, get stuck. We can't unstick ourselves. It's like, well, maybe if I just think about the danger for the 57th time, it will go away. Right. Mm-hmm. And so these are natural reactions to try to feel safe. The only problem is they actually aren't very effective. Right. A more effective way to deal with danger is to we also can feel safe through attachment and through caregiving. You know, when we help our children feel safe, for instance, by saying we're here for you, we support you, we give them a hug, we make them feel loved. And that helps our children feel safe. We know how to calm down a crying child. You know, of course, it doesn't work the same way for all kids, but we know how to try to calm down a crying child through the force of love, you might say, through the force of care. This is also a physiological system we have. This is associated with parasympathetic reactivity, you know, the things like oxytocin and heart rate variability. So we can make ourselves feel safe this way, but it doesn't, it takes a little longer because we're used to doing it for others, but we aren't used to doing it to ourselves. And so when we learn to do that, it helps. So that's one reason. And then the other reason um, is culture. Culture tells us that, you know, it's selfish to be self-compassionate. We should be focused on other people. We should be sacrificing our needs. Women get that message particularly strongly, you know. You shouldn't be focusing on yourself. You shouldn't give yourself what you need. Or people are afraid that it's self-pity, wallowing in self-pity. Actually, the number one fear is that it's going to undermine my motivation. I won't change if I'm kind to myself, you know. When in fact, it's the exact opposite. You're more likely to change. If you're kind to yourself, you're more able to accept responsibility because it's safe to do so. You're more likely to do something about it. You're more likely to be motivated to, you know, help yourself in some way. And so, you know, culture has just really gotten it wrong, sadly. And so that's partly why it's my life's mission to try to clear up these misconceptions about self-compassion. You know, it ain't so I'm wondering if in doing your work, do you notice differences in you know, you said it's cultural. So I imagine this is different in different countries or, or cultures. Have you found that in your work? Yes. So so, um, so what we find is that basically, no matter what culture you're looking at, self-compassion is beneficial. You know, even if the, the culture encourages self-compassion or discourages it, those who naturally have more self-compassion have better well-being, you know, mental and physical. But there are differences in in levels. And it's not like an east-west difference. So we found in some of our research, for instance, that Thailand, now Thailand's very Buddhist and they take meditation very seriously and self-compassion is kind of part of the culture and they have higher levels. Taiwan, we found, is very, very low. 
because it's kind of the Confucian culture, the belief that you need to criticize yourself to achieve. Um, Americans were kind of in between. People in Britain are actually low. It's kind of that Puritan, you know, ethic of, you know, just don't complain, carry on, you know, mm-hmm. soldier on. Um, so there are differences in levels of self-compassion, partly based on um, the cultural messages we receive. We'll be right back after this quick break. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Guilt Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. So let's shift gears and talk about kids. So I know that the things that we say to our kids becomes their inner voice. And so I'm wondering what thoughts you have on how we can ensure that we are contributing to, that we're not contributing to having that inner critical voice as our kids uh, grow up. Yeah. So first of all, just to say it's natural. So for instance, my son Rowan, and you can imagine I've never criticized him. I've always talked about self-compassion. And I still, sometimes I overhear him, you know, autistic kids often talk out loud. I often overhear him beating himself up when he's made a mistake. And I didn't give that to him. And so part of it is just the natural fear reaction, right? He's afraid and he's seen like in cartoons, well, bullies bully others to try to control their behavior. So he bullies himself to try to control things because he's afraid of making that mistake again. And so it's, we, as parents, we don't have to own all our children's self-criticism. It, it also comes naturally. Again, it's a basic natural safety behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, the fact that I have talked a lot to him about self-compassion is paying off. So then, you know, I'll catch him doing that and then we can have a talk about it. We can talk about standing up to his inner bully. And then also at other times, really talk about the importance of being kind and supportive to yourself. Um, what we know about self-compassion, what the research shows is that it's, it's contagious. So if you talk in a self-compassionate way, other people start being more self-compassionate. Like they get the message, oh, okay, well, maybe that's a good way to talk to myself. So if you're a parent and you make any sort of mistake, whether it's a mistake with your child, you know, apologizing, taking responsibility, but showing compassion. So instead of beating yourself up in front of your kid, like, you know, I'm so sorry, God, I'm such a bad mom, or I'm so stupid, thinking that your child's going to like, that's going to help your child. That's actually you're modeling poor behavior for your child. You can admit a mistake and talk about, well, you know, it's human. Here's what was going on for me, you know, and I I understand why it happened. Although at the same time, I'm committed to trying not to have it happen again, right? 
Or if you break a glass, instead of like saying, oh, I'm such an idiot, you can say, well, you know, this happens. Remember that the three messages you're always trying to give is mindfulness, acknowledging that it's painful, not ignoring it or exaggerating it. Um, Common humanity, it happens as part of being human. And kindness, showing yourself. If Out loud, if you say words that are kind of understanding and kind and supportive, then you will give that message to your kids. So that's one way. And if you want to talk to them directly about it, um, a really good uh, metaphor to use is is friendship. Because by about the age of seven, you know, the kids start understanding what it means to be a friend or they start learning about what it means to be a friend. And that's just the time to slip in there and remember to be a good friend to yourself as well, Mm. you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's some good books out there for kids on how to be a good friend to yourself. Just, and just one last thing, if you'll indulge me. Sure. Uh, empathic resonance. <laughs> so, for instance, you know, uh, autistic kids, a lot of people say that they don't have um, a lot of empathy. It's actually not true. They don't have the ability to perspective take. It's hard for them to do theory of mind and do mind reading. But they're very sensitive to other people's emotions. And that's part of why they shut down, because they get, they're so sensitive and they get overwhelmed. And so, basically... You you feed off your child's emotions. When they're upset and distressed, you feel upset and distressed, right? And they feed off your emotions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if you're frustrated and upset with yourself, they're feeling that. But if you give yourself compassion, you know, so, so with Rowan, you know, he was like a mirror for me. When he was younger, we'd have these ear-splitting tantrums. And I would find if I got frustrated or overwhelmed, his tantrums would just ramp up. But if I could give myself compassion, if I could say, this is so hard for me right now, I'm feeling overwhelmed, I'd like say kind things to myself, I'd put my hand on my heart, I'd kind of flood myself with this loving, connected presence, he would calm down. Because, you know, empathic resonance goes both ways. So our kids are feeding off of not only what we say, but also our internal mind state. Human beings are designed to feel the emotions of others. That's how our brains work. So what you cultivate inside can actually directly help regulate your child's emotion. And I'm not saying it's like magic. You know, sometimes they're still going to have a tantrum and all that. But it really does help. So it's not just good for you. It can also be good for your child. Yeah, I mean, and I've experienced that in varying degrees, depending on where I am in my life and what's what's happening yeah. in my world. But, you know, what you're saying is just such a important reminder of, this is the kind of work I feel like so many of us think, I don't have time to do this right now. I'm dealing with all this stuff. I can't add this on. But this is the work. Like this is taking the time to do this is perhaps the most powerful thing we can do. Yeah. And the good news is, is you don't have to like sit in meditation for 30 minutes. You don't have to take any extra time. You do it in the moment. In the moment that your child is screaming their head off, you're feeling overwhelmed. You just hold whatever pain you're experiencing in this loving, connected presence. You know, it doesn't take any time to say to yourself, wow, this is so hard. You know, how can I help myself in this moment? Or, you know, just kind of having that that sympathy for yourself or just remembering this is part of the human experience. You know, I'm not alone. It doesn't take any extra time. The time you practice is when you're in pain or you're suffering. Right. So we have lots of opportunity. Lots of opportunity. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So, all right, let me just ask one more question. 
I was talking with my son earlier. My son is 16 and I told him I was interviewing you. And I said, she's written this really great book about self-compassion. He's like, I could use some self-compassion. I'm I'm like, Uh well, you know, you can read the book, but, but I'd love to know, especially right now, you know, as we're recording this, we are still in the kind of the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic. Kids are mostly doing remote learning. Things feel so difficult for them right now. And so do you have any kind of specific thoughts on how we can support kids and starting to play with this idea of self-compassion, maybe particularly teenagers? Yeah, well, so, so you know, well, we've developed the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, which is aimed at adults. There's actually a teen version of the program called Making Friends with Yourself. And so if people go to the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion, if you Google that, you'll find the website. And there are programs people can take online. And there are workbooks. Again, so we have the the workbook, Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook, which as a parent, you could even go through some of the exercises with your kid. But again, there's also a version um, for teens, a teen workbook, and I'm blanking on the name, but you'll find it if you if you um if you go to the resources page on my website, which is selfcompassion.org. So there are resources out there. That's that's the good news. We've we've really figured out how do we teach this to others. It's not just a good idea. There are like many, many well-developed empirically researched practices that you can use. And I would really suggest doing it as a family. You know, it's not like you don't want to tell your kids, hey, you need self-compassion. <laughs> They're going to react like, oh, that's thanks. One more thing I got to do. It's mm-hmm. going to seem like a chore. You don't want to force it down anyone's throat. Um, but if you talk about how, you know, wow, I, I really want to do this to help me, you know, and kind of come from a first person perspective, and then you can kind of invite your child into that. Well, maybe, you know, is this something we, maybe we should work together? You can do practices together. You can do meditations together. Um, I have lots of guided practices on my website, for instance. So you could listen to together if you wanted, if your child's interested. And so you, you have to be a little gingerly about it. Again, you don't want to shove it down someone's throat because they aren't going to accept it. I, I really think the best way is to talk about how it's helping yourself. And you could kind of say, which would you say that to, you know, your good friend, whoever the good friend is, and they would probably say no. Well, well what, what do you think would happen if you told your best friend what you just said to yourself? Well, they, you know, they'd feel sad. It would hurt. Well, do you think the same thing's happening to you? I mean, so this is like basic logic mm-hmm. um, that you that you can use. Mm-hmm. That's great. So for for listeners who are listening to this conversation and they it's resonating with them, what is one you know, after they're done listening to this episode, and they really want to hold on to something that they might take with them throughout the day, apply in a situation. Do you have kind of one thing that they could start with? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's I could achieve slightly two things, but they go together. So um, the next time you're really stressed, or you're feeling overwhelmed, or you're feeling sad or worried, just try putting your hand on your heart, or if the heart doesn't feel good on your face or your stomach, some other place that feels good, put your hand on your body, and just say, what would I say to a good friend to help a good friend you know, comfort them and let them know I'm here for them in this moment? Just just think about that. What would I say? And then try saying it to yourself in the same tone of voice, the kind of warm, supportive tone of voice, and see what happens. Awesome. Wow. Kristen, thank you so much. So many things to think about. I feel calmer. <laughs> so thank you for that. And you've shared lots of great resources, listeners. I will include those on the show notes. Are, are there any other place besides your website that people can connect with you? Um, well, well, my website really is the best place, selfcompassion.org. Like I say, I've got tons of resources. 
Um, and alternatively, if you want to get training in self-compassion, you know, everyone's doing anything, everything by Zoom these days. So you can get online training in self-compassion through the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion. And you can also get there from my website. But that's really the place to start. Um, and I do have books. I've got my, my first book, Self-Compassion, where I talk a lot about my experience with my son, Ron, and his autism. So that if that appeals to you, I would start there. We also have the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook, which has like 37 exercises you can do. And we also have a guide for professionals if you're like a caregiver or a therapist and you want to integrate this stuff into your professional life. Mm, so great. Yeah. And I highly recommend your book. And I, I'll check out the workbook. And even just in your book itself, you have so many great exercises throughout. And I'm one of those people who loves doing exercises and books. Very, I love the practical, tangible takeaway. Yes. So thank you for that. So, all right. Well, thank you again for this conversation. Super interesting. And I'm really grateful that you shared all this with us today. Oh, you're welcome, Debbie. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, where you can download the transcript, find links to Kristen Neff's website, her books, including Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself, and all the other resources we discussed, visit tiltparenting.com slash session 231. If you get a lot out of this podcast and would like to help me cover the costs of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. On Patreon, you can sign up to make a small monthly contribution as little as $2 a month just to support the show. To sign up, go to patreon.com slash tiltparenting. Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by subscribing and leaving a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you so much for considering. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information on Tilt Parenting, visit www.tiltparenting.com. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.